You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Occult Movement in the Nineteenth Century. This is Lecture 3. Because other matters have still to be discussed, I will add only a brief episode today to the subjects of which we have been hearing during the last few days. Still more specific details will have to be given tomorrow in connection with the occult movement in the 19th century and its relation to civilization and culture. I must, however, insert into the course of our studies a subject that is very important. You will remember certain things I have said in connection with von Rangel's brochure titled Science and Theosophy, and when I repeat them, you will realize that from the point of view of spiritual science, great significance must be attached to the advent of materialism and the materialistic world conception in the 19th century. Simply to adopt an attitude of criticism would be quite wrong. A critical attitude is always the easiest when something confronts one. It is therefore essential to realize that the current in the evolution of humanity, which may be called the materialistic view of the world, arose in the 19th century quite inevitably. It has already been amply characterized, but two aspects may be described which will make its whole significance doubly clear to to us. In the form in which it appeared in the 19th century as an actual view of the world, materialism had never hitherto existed. True, there had been individual materialistic philosophers such as Democritus and others, you can read about them in my book titled Riddles of Philosophy, who were, so to speak, the forerunners of theoretical materialism. But if we compare the view of the world they actually held with what comes to expression in the materialism of the 19th century, it will be quite evident that materialism had never previously existed in that form. Least of all, could it have existed, let us say, in the Middle Ages, or in the centuries immediately preceding the dawn of modern thought. Because in those days the souls of men were still too closely connected with the impulses of the spiritual world. To conceive that the whole universe is nothing more than a sum total of self-moving atoms in space, and that these atoms, conglomerating into molecules, give rise to all the phenomena of life and of the spirit, such a conception was reserved for the nineteenth century. Now it can be said that there is, and always will be, something that can be detected like a scarlet thread, even in the most baleful conceptions of the world. And if we follow this scarlet thread, which runs through the evolution of humanity, we shall be bound to recognize, at very least, the inconsistency of the materialistic view of the world. This scarlet thread consists in the simple fact that human beings think. Without thinking, 
man could not possibly arrive even at a materialistic view of the world. After all, he has thought out such a view, only he has forgotten to practice this one particle of self-knowledge. You yourself think, and the atoms cannot think. If only this one particle of self-knowledge is practiced, there is something to hold up to, and by holding to it one will always find that it is not compatible with materialism. But to discover the truth of this, materialism must be recognized as what it really is. As long as man had, as it were, a counterfeit idea of materialism, an idea in which spiritual impulses were still included, he could hold fast to the fragment of spirit he still sought to find in the phenomena of nature, and so forth. Not until he had cast out all spirit through the spirit, for thinking is possible only for the spirit, not until through the spirit he had cast out spirit from the structure of the universe could the materialistic view of the world confront him in all its barrenness. It was necessary that at some time man should be faced with the whole barrenness of materialism. But what is also essential here is to reflect about thinking that is absolutely indispensable. As soon as we do so, we shall realize that the barren vista presented by materialism had necessarily to appear at some point in evolution in order that men might become aware of what actually confronts them there. That is one aspect of the matter. But it cannot be rightly understood unless its other aspect is presented. Materialistic picture of the world, space in space atoms which are in movement, and this is the all. Fundamentally, it is an outer consequence, a mirage of one side of space, and the atoms moving within it, that is to say, these, those minute particles of which, as we have shown in earlier lectures, genuine thinking will not admit the existence. But ever and again men come to these atoms. How are they found? How does man come to assume their existence? Nobody can ever have seen atoms, for they are conjectures, inventions of the mind. Apart from the reality, therefore, there must be some instigation which prompts man to think out an atomistic world. Something must instigate the proclivity in him to think out an atomistic world. Nature herself most assuredly does not lead him to form an atomistic picture of her. With a trained physicist, and I am not speaking hypothetically here, for I have actually discussed such matters with physicists. With a trained physicist one can speak about these things because he has knowledge of external physics. He could never have hit upon atomism. He would have to say, as indeed was the conclusion reached by shrewder physicists in the 80s of last century, atomism is an assumption, a working hypothesis, which affords a basis for calculation. But let us be quite clear that we are not dealing with any reality. Thoughtful physicists would prefer to keep to what they perceive with the senses, but again and again, like a cat falling on its feet, they come back to atomism. Mention has often been made of these things since I gave the lectures on the title Theosophy of the Rosicrucian in Munich. And if you have studied what has been elaborated through the years, 
you will know that the rudiments of the physical body were imparted to man on old Saturn, that he then passed through the old sun and old moon evolutions, and then during the old moon period received into his organism, into what existed of his physical organism at that time, his nerve system. It would, however, be quite erroneous to imagine that during the old moon epoch the nerve system was similar to what presents itself today to an anatomist or physiologist. In the old moon epoch the nerve system was present as archetype only, as imagination. It did not become physical, or better said mineral, in the chemical sense, until the earth period. The whole ramified nerve system we now have in our body is a product of the earth. During the earth's development, mineral matter was incorporated into the imaginative archetypes of our nerve system, as well as into the other archetypes. That is how our present nerve system came into being. The materialist says, With this nerve system I think, or I perceive. We know that this is nonsense. To get a correct idea of the process, let us picture the course of some nerve in the organism, and there's a diagram. But now let us follow different nerves, which run through the organism and send out ramifications like branches. A nerve has, as it were, a stem from which branches spread out. These branches come into the neighborhood of others, and then still another filament continues on its way. Now how does man's life of soul take its course within this nerve system? That is the question of primary importance. We can form no true conception here if we consider the day-waking consciousness only. But if a man thinks of the moment when together with his ego and astral body he slips out of the body and therefore also out of the nerve system and especially of the moment when he slips into the body again on waking he will have a peculiar experience. During sleep, in his ego and astral body, he has been outside his nerves. He slips into the nerves again and is actually within them during his waking life. In the act of waking, he feels himself streaming, as it were, from outside into the nerves. The process of waking is much more complicated than can be conveyed in a diagram. Through the day, together with his soul, man is within his body, filling it to the uttermost limits of the nerves. It is not as though the physical body were filled with a kind of undifferentiated mist. The organs and various organic structures are pervaded individually. As he passes into the different organs, man also slips into the sensory nerve filaments, right to the very outermost ramifications of the nerves. Let us try to picture it vividly. Again, I will make a sketch, but can draw it only as a kind of mirrored reflection. I can draw it only from the outside, whereas in reality it ought to be drawn from within. Suppose here, there's a diagram, is the astral body, and here the sensory antenna extending from it. What I am drawing is all astral body. It, ske it sketches certain antenna into the nerve fibers. Now suppose the sleeves of my coat were sewn up, and I were to slip my arm into the coat. Suppose I had a hundred arms and were to slip them in this way into what would amount to sacks. 
with these hundred arms I should come up against the places where the sleeves are sewn up. In the same way I slip into the physical body right to the ends of the nerve fibers. As long as I am in the act of slipping in, I feel nothing. It is only when I reach the point of point where the sleeves are sewn up that I feel anything. It is the same with the nerves. We feel the nerve only at the point where it ends. Throughout the day we are within the nerve substance, touching our nerve ends all the time. Man does not realize this consciously, but it expresses itself in his consciousness willy-nilly. Now, man thinks with his ego and astral body, and we may therefore say, thinking is an activity that is carried over by the ego and astral body to the etheric body. Something from the etheric body also plays a part, its movement at any rate. The cause of consciousness is that, in acts of thinking, I continually come to a point where an impact occurs. I make an impact at an infinite number of points, but I am not conscious of this. It comes into consciousness only in the case of one who consciously experiences the process of waking. When he passes consciously into the mantle of his nerves, he feels as if he were being pricked all over. I once knew an interesting man who had become conscious of this in an abnormal way. He was a distinguished mathematician, conversant with the whole range of higher mathematics at that time. He was also, of course, much occupied with the differential and integral calculus. The differential in mathematics is the atomic, the very smallest unit that can be conceived. I cannot say more about it today. Although it was not a fully conscious experience, this man had the sensation of being pricked all over when he was engrossed in the study of differential calculus. Now, if this experience is not lifted into consciousness in the proper way, by such exercises as are given in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? Very strange things may occur. This man believed that he was feeling the differentials all over him. Quote, I am crammed full of differentials, close quote, he, he said. Quote, I have nothing integral in me, close quote. And moreover, he demonstrated in a very ingenious way that he was full of differentials. Now try to envisage these pricks vividly. What does a man do with them? if they do not reach his consciousness. He projects them into space, fills space with them, and they are then the atoms. That, in truth, is the origin of atomism. If there is a mirror in front of you, and you have no idea that it is a mirror, you will certainly believe that there, outside, is another collection of people. In the same way, man conceives that the whole of space is filled with what he himself projects into it. This entire nerve process is reflected back into man owing to the fact that he comes up against it as a kind of barrier. But he is not conscious of this, and so he conceives of the whole of surrounding space as being filled with atoms. The atoms are ostensibly the pricks made by his nerve endings. Nature herself nowhere obliges us to assume the existence of atoms, but the human constitution does. At the moment of waking, man dives down into his own being and becomes inwardly aware of an infinite number of spatial points within him. At this moment, he is in exactly the same position as when he walks up to a mirror, 
knocks up against it and realizes then that he cannot get behind it. Similarly, at the moment of waking, a man comes up against his nerve endings and knows that he cannot get beyond them. The whole atomic picture is like a reflecting screen. The moment a man realizes that he cannot get behind it, he knows how things are. And now, think of a saying of St. Martin, which I have quoted on previous occasions. What does a natural scientist say? He says, analyze the phenomena of nature and you find the atomic world. We, however, know that the atomic world is simply not there. The truth is that our nerve endings alone are there. What then is there where the atomic world is conjectured to be? Nothing is there. We must imagine, excuse me, we must remain at the mirror, at the nerve ends. Man is there, and man is a reflecting apparatus. When this is not recognized, all kinds of things are conjectured to lie behind him. The materialistic view of the world arises, whereas in reality it is man who must be discovered. But this cannot happen as long as it is said, analyze the phenomena of nature, for this results in atomism. It should rather be said, try to get beyond what is mere semblance, try to see through semblance, and then it will not be said, and you find the atomic world, but rather, and you find man. And now call to mind what St. Martin said as a kind of prophecy, without fully understanding it himself. Forgive me, there's a French phrase, and no translation. Readers aside, and readers aside. This is exactly the same thing but it can only be understood with the help of what we have here been considering. Through the way in which we are bringing spiritual science into connection both with natural science and also with its errors, we are fulfilling a longing that has existed ever since there were men who had some inkling of the fallaciousness of the modern materialistic view of the world. When we think of the intrinsic character of our own conception of the world, the fact of untold significance that strikes us is this. Spiritual science is there because it has been longed for by those who have had a feeling for the true, for the truth which alone can bring that of which modern humanity stands in need. In the lecture tomorrow I shall show you why error was bound to arise when the attempt with spiritualism was made in the 19th century. I have indicated to you in many ways that it was a matter of suggestions exercised by living men whereas it was believed that influences were coming from the dead. The dead can be reached only by withdrawing into those members of man's psychic being which can be lifted out of the physical body. The life of the human being between death and a new birth can be known only through what can be experienced outside the physical body. Therefore mediums, using the word in its real meaning, cannot be used for this purpose. More about this tomorrow, when what is said will be connected with the subject of the life after death. The end of Lecture 3